you will need your Bible this morning. Go ahead and keep it open to Isaiah 52 and 53. This is the end of our Sunday morning series. This is week six of six. We've spent the last week looking at six different passages, six different prophecies in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 7, 9, 42, 49, 50, and 52. The last four are known as the servant songs. The first two are prophecies we especially associate with Christmas. And we've looked at these prophecies that were written 700 years before their fulfillment. We've just tried to wrap our mind around what was Isaiah talking about? How was it fulfilled in Jesus? And how does it impact us today. At times, as you read through these prophecies, it's almost like Isaiah is watching it unfold in real time. You almost have to go back and remind yourselves at certain points, this was seven centuries in advance of the actual fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And it's a great encouragement. We talked about this last week. It's a great encouragement to remember the truthfulness and the power and the living activeness of God's word that 700 years in advance the prophet would talk about these things. We started with Isaiah 7 and 9. Isaiah 7 and 9 contain prophecies about the birth and the identity of Jesus. It's not called the servant yet. It's just talking about the birth of a human baby. There's going to be a baby born, a human baby. But this human baby is going to be more than just a human baby. He's going to be actually Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And this baby who's going to be born is actually going to have the government on his Shoulders, And so you read these prophecies and you say, okay, we're waiting for a human baby to be born, but we also know that this baby is going to be truly extraordinary, truly unique. Then we move to Isaiah 42 and 49. Those two chapters talk about the servant of the Lord bringing justice to the earth and salvation to all peoples. Justice, this idea that all of the wrongs will be set right. Everything that makes you sort of bow up or bristle or feel uneasy or sends a chill down your spine, all of these things that are unjust, they're not right, will be made right. And salvation will be provided for all of the peoples. Not doesn't mean every individual is going to be saved, but it means all of the nations, all of the different groups of peoples, all of the families on the earth will have this salvation, will have access to this salvation. So justice and salvation, that's his mission. Last week, we talked about Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50 says that the servant of the Lord would accomplish his mission through obedience and suffering. Obedience and suffering. That's how he's going to accomplish the mission. He's going to be obedient. Unlike the nation of Israel, who never listened and who was stubborn and rebellious, the servant will listen to the Lord. It'll be obedient to the Lord. And then surprisingly, as you're reading Isaiah 50, you read that he's going to suffer. And that's a new idea. Up to that point, you're looking for a king or a, a general or a military ruler or somebody with power. And then Isaiah begins to sort of lay it out for us. The servant of the Lord is actually going to suffer. And we looked last week at this prophecy in 50, Isaiah 50. And it's almost like, it's very brief, but it's almost like Isaiah just pulled something right out of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John. The gospel accounts of the crucifixion as he describes what would happen to the servant. And what you see in small form in Isaiah 50 is just expanded in Isaiah 52 and 53. It's our passage this morning. It's the fourth and the last 
servant song. I don't know any other way to describe it to you than to say my feeling is the preacher talking about Isaiah 52 and 53 is that we're walking into holy ground. And it's sort of fitting. In my Sunday school class this morning, we talked about Moses and the burning bush. And the Lord says to Moses, Moses, take the sandals off your feet for the place that you're standing on is holy ground. And we talked about that. And I'm not going to take my boots off and preach in my socks this morning. But I'm just telling you that when you come to Isaiah 52 and 53, you just feel like it's weighty. Like it's heavy, like there's a seriousness to it. And I don't mean that the rest of Scripture is light and frivolous and you just sort of laugh at it. I just mean there's something extra here when you read about Isaiah. 700 years in in the past, looking forward and talking about what would happen at the cross. One of the things that makes this passage interesting is a little bit different than the other prophecies that Isaiah lays out and that you find in the Old Testament. This prophecy had no initial fulfillment. It was only fulfilled in Jesus. What do I mean by that? We looked at Isaiah 7 and the birth of this baby. This virgin will conceive. This young woman will conceive and bear a child. And we talked about there was an initial fulfillment. Isaiah's son was born. But then there was an ultimate fulfillment. And a lot of Old Testament prophecy works that way. There's something in the short run that fulfills the prophecy a little bit, but then there's something coming down the road that's the full, true fulfillment. I'm just telling you that Isaiah 52 and 53, there's no short-term fulfillment. There's nothing in in the, the near scene that fulfills what Isaiah is talking about. It's only about Jesus. And that's not just me saying it, that's actually the New Testament saying saying that. Acts chapter 8 tells a fascinating story about a man named Philip. And I don't want to spend too much time in Acts 8, but Philip is sort of doing his thing, preaching for the Lord, doing some amazing things. And the Lord has Philip cross paths with a eunuch from Ethiopia. And he ends up in the chariot with this, this Ethiopian guy. And they're talking to each other. Philip says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm reading the Old Testament. I'm reading the Scriptures. And he says, what are you reading? He says, I'm reading Isaiah 53. And he quotes it to Philip. And he says, it's a great thing you showed up because I have a question about Isaiah 53. Who's it about? Who's he talking about? Is he talking about himself, the prophet? Is he talking about the people? I, I don't know who he's talking about. And this is what we read in Acts chapter 8. The eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, himself or someone else? Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture... This scripture is Isaiah 53. Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. These chapters have no initial fulfillment. You don't see anyone else sort of stepping into this role and doing what we read about in Isaiah 52 and 53. Just like Philip this morning, we want to talk about in Isaiah 52 and 3, the good news about Jesus. And so that brings us to the big idea. Here it is. The big idea of Isaiah 52 and 3, the servant of the Lord would die as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. The servant of the Lord would die as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. He would die in their place. Sinners deserve death from Almighty and Holy God 
And the servant of the Lord was going to come and die in their place, to die as their substitute. What you see in Isaiah 52 and 53 is the idea that the innocent would die for the guilty. The innocent would suffer and take the punishment for those who are guilty. Over the Christmas break, Brooke and I were, had some free time. And we decided we would watch Netflix. How many of you have Netflix or something like Netflix? Everybody has Netflix. Not everybody, but a lot of people have Netflix. And if you're like us, what we do is we turn Netflix on and we spend most of our time scrolling through Netflix, looking at all the movies and saying, do you want to watch this? No, I don't want to watch that. Do you want to watch this? I want to watch this. Well, I don't want to watch that. And we just scroll and we scroll and we scroll. And some of you are going to ask me, have we watched Bird Box? Yes, we've watched Bird Box, but I'm not talking about Bird Box this morning. This has nothing to do with Bird Box. I've seen Bird Box all over Facebook and social media and the internet all week long. We watched a couple of nights ago a documentary, and the documentary was called The Innocent Man. The Innocent Man. It's based off John Grisham's only nonfiction book. So John Grisham writes 8,000 murder mysteries, law mysteries, crime mysteries. He wrote one nonfiction book called The Innocent Man, and this is the, the story. It picks up what Grisham was writing about. And it's basically a story from the 1980s in Ada, Oklahoma. And Brooke and I were interested because we lived not too far from Ada in a town not unlike Ada, in Oklahoma. And so there's this story. Ada, Oklahoma, in the 80s, two women were murdered. Separate crimes, separate incidents. The first woman who was murdered, uh, two men were convicted of her murder and they were sent to jail. And one of those men was given the death penalty and one of those men was given life in prison. And they stayed in prison for 12 years until DNA evidence really became a thing. And then they were completely exonerated of the crime. There was just no question about it. These men did not do what they were accused of doing. And they spent 12 years in prison for a crime that they didn't commit. And I told you that one of the men was was given a, a death sentence. At one point during those 12 years, he was five days away from execution. And he was going through the appeals process and he was insisting on his innocence. And I just can't imagine the mental anguish of being less than a week away from being executed for a crime that you didn't actually commit. And 12 years later, these two men were released and they were set free. I told you two women were murdered. And so in the second murder case, the same thing essentially happened. Two individuals, two men were convicted of this crime. They were sent to prison and they're still in prison. Same community. Very same situation, the same sort of uh, police force and DA's office and all the rest of it. And the question of the film is, are these men also innocent? And they start to look at the story and unpack all the details. And as you watch the documentary, you come away saying, these guys had the same thing done to them as these first two guys. The first two guys got out after 12 years. These guys have been in prison for 34 years. And I'm just telling you, as you watch the documentary, I don't know the real story. I don't know what happened. I haven't heard the other side of things. I've just heard what the documentary wants me to hear. You turn it off and you say, what a tragedy. Innocent men being punished for something that they didn't do. And whether you think they're guilty or innocent, you come away wrestling with this idea. What a terrible thought that someone would be convicted and incarcerated and maybe even executed for something that they had nothing to do with. And they insist on their innocence and they plead their innocence and they make their case and they bring out the evidence and yet they're still convicted of something that they didn't do. 
And as you watch the documentary, the, the documentary, you wrestle with the horror of that. And as I'm watching the innocent man, I'm reading Isaiah 52 and 53. And Isaiah is telling us that the only truly innocent, righteous man who ever lived in the history of the world was executed in the place of guilty sinners like me and you. It's the exact same situation. The only difference is the servant of the Lord did it willingly and gladly. And it was part of God's plan. And you come to Isaiah 52 and 53 and you read about this innocent man dying in your mind just You can't help but marvel at God's grace and his mercy and his sovereignty and his wisdom and his plan and how it's all unfolded in history, predicted by Isaiah, fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And so this morning we're going to look at this last servant song. It's 15 verses long. There are five stanzas of three verses each. And so that's the breakdown. If you're a type A person like me, it drives you crazy that this song is in two chapters. You think, why didn't they bump the chapter division back? I don't have a good answer for that. I can tell you that in John Calvin's commentary, he says this is a dismemberment to the song to separate it over two chapters. It all belongs together. And whoever chopped it in half with the chapter division dismembered the psalm. That's a quote from Calvin. But that's the way it is. The chapter divisions are set. We're not going to change them. We're not going to learn new chapters and verses. This is where it's at. The last three verses in Isaiah 52, the next section of Isaiah 53, five different sections. I I just want you to see one thought. From each stanza. One thought from each stanza about the servant of the Lord, and we'll start with this. The servant of the Lord should be worshipped, not pitied. Should be worshipped, not pitied. And this is where we go off the rails from my illustration about the innocent man and all of that stuff. When you watch the documentary, you say, I feel terribly for these people. No one expects you to feel terribly for the servant of the Lord. And sometimes that's what we do in church. We take the Lord's Supper and we think about the cross and we think, oh, I feel so bad. That's really, really bad. That's horrible. God doesn't want you to feel bad about it. And we're going to see why as this, this song unfolds. What he wants you to do is worship the servant, not pity the servant. And so let's just read this stanza, Isaiah 52, the last three verses. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Underline that word. He will act wisely. He will be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Isaiah is saying to you in this very sort of introductory stanza, don't pity the servant. He will act wisely. He's not going to be crucified because he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not just that he made a mistake and he said something to someone that he shouldn't have said or he offended the police chief in this town or he got on the bad side of the high priest and it really was was Jesus' fault. He will act wisely. He knows exactly what he's doing. Now, Isaiah doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't hold back. He says, look, His appearance is astonishing. Why? Because it was marred beyond human semblance and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. When it all went down at the cross, you would have been horrified 
to look on it. He admits that. But he doesn't want you to pity him. He doesn't want you to just sort of work up, well, I feel sorry for him. Because he says right there in verse 13, he will be high and lifted up and exalted. Do not feel bad for him. Worship him. And he comes down at the end of that stanza, verse 15, he says, He will sprinkle many nations. That word sprinkle goes all the way back to the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would offer this sacrifice and he would go into the holy place and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the ark. And in sprinkling that blood, the blood acted as a covering and there was forgiveness. And there was salvation for the people. And Isaiah says he's going to sprinkle many nations. He's going to provide forgiveness for them. He's going to provide salvation for them. He's going to die as a substitute. He's not asking for your pity. What he's asking for is your worship. That you acknowledge that he is high and that he's lifted up and that he's exalted. Stanza number two. The servant of the Lord was rejected by men. He was rejected by men. We'll just read the first three verses of Isaiah 53. Stanza 2. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him. That is the servant. This arm of the Lord. He grew up before the Lord like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was rejected. Sometimes you see art of Jesus and he has a holy glow about him as he's walking around. And it's the artist way of saying to you, this one in the painting is Jesus. You don't need to wonder, this is Jesus. Sometimes we get this idea that as he walked around there was this holy glow about him. And that everyone just sort of recognized it and saw it. The only people in the Gospels who consistently recognized Jesus for who he was were the demons. Everyone else rejected him. They didn't see it. They didn't get it. Notice the words that Isaiah used. He's like a root out of dry ground. That's really appealing, isn't it? We live in a place with dry ground. It's just great, right? A root sticking up, looking for water. It's scraggly and it's ugly and it's unappealing. That's what he was like. No majesty, no beauty, despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was one that men hid their faces from. They didn't even want to look at him. I think there's a warning in this stanza for those of us who like to think, as we read the Gospels, if only I could have been there. I mean, we're grateful that we have the Bible, but we think, if only I could have been there when he fed the 5,000. If only I could have been there when he walked on the water. If only I could have been there when he cast demons out of the demoniac in the cemetery and sent them into the pigs and the pigs ran over the cliff. If only I could have seen something like that, then it would have been a lot easier to believe. And that's wrong. It wouldn't have been any easier to believe. It wouldn't have. The people who saw him the most and knew him the best didn't get it. They didn't see him. His family rejected his claims to be the Messiah. In fact, at times they went to gather him and to calm him down and to pull him back and to rein him in. 
His best friends were confused about who he was and what he was doing. His hometown rejected him, and actually at his first sermon, they hauled him out of town to kill him. First sermon in his hometown. The most theologically astute, educated, knowledgeable people in his nation rejected him. And for some reason, you and I think if we had been there, we would have been different. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering, acquainted with grief, and people hid their faces from him. This is irony of ironies. That Jesus came to save people who had rejected God in their life, and those people rejected Jesus. And it's not just irony of ironies, it's God's grace upon grace. That when we rejected him, he sent his son to suffer and die in our place. And when we rejected his son, he sends his spirit to change our hearts and to open our eyes, to overcome our blindness, to give us new hearts. The servant was rejected. Number three, stanza three, the servant of the Lord carried our sin. He carried our sin. This is verse four, five, and six. It's as plain as anything you'll read in the Bible. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment or the discipline that brings us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What an accurate description of sin that verse is. We have gone our own way. God says go this way and we have gone our own way. God says do it that way and we insist in doing it that way. God says feel this way and we say no I want to feel that instead. All of us have done that. We have all gone our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He carried our sins. The theological term for this is imputation. Or you could say our sins were imputed to Jesus. He carried them. He carried them. And the picture that you find in the Old Testament that points you forward in this direction is way back in Leviticus, way back to the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would take these sacrifices. And before he ever killed the animal and took the blood and sprinkled the altar, he took this animal and he placed his hands on the head of the animal, of the goat or of the bull. And as he placed his hands on the head of this animal, he would start confessing his sins, his own personal sins. And later in the process, he would start confessing the sins of the people. Out loud, hands on the animal, confessing sins. And it was a picture for everyone watching saying, that animal is going to die for your sins. It was a picture of a transfer taking place, a picture of imputation taking place, those sins being placed on the head of that animal. And what Isaiah is saying is you want to know when that really, really happened? It's not the day of atonement with bulls and goats. It's when the Son of God, the servant of the Lord, died on the cross and our sins were imputed to him. They were placed upon him. It was like somebody placed their hands on his head and confessed their sins and a transfer took place. He carried our sins. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We have all turned our own way. 
and he has laid on the servant our iniquity. All of it. Our blasphemy and our idolatry and our violence and our lust and our rage and our jealousy and our lying and our slander and our gossip, all of it. And he laid it on the servant. Number four, the servant of the Lord was a perfect sacrifice. Perfect sacrifice. This is the fourth stanza, seven, eight, and nine. The scripture says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He's the perfect sacrifice. Perfect in two ways, as Isaiah described it. Perfect once because he was morally pure. You see this idea in the Old Testament that you couldn't bring a, a crippled lamb or an injured lamb or a defective animal or a dying animal, but you had to bring a spotless animal because it's pointing you forward to the spotless one, the sinless one, the pure one, the holy one, the righteous one who would die as our substitute. And he says he had no, no deceit in his mouth. He had done no violence. He didn't have any sin of his own to be punished for, to be killed for. He was pure, and he was righteous, and he was spotless. He was also willing. He was willing, and this sets him apart from all of those animals in the Old Testament and the Day of Atonement and the Passover and all the rest of it. I know that I wasn't there, but from what I know about animals, I don't imagine the lambs were lining up and volunteering. Hey, pick me. Right? They were drugged kicking and screaming and bleeding. It was violent. It was ugly. It was heinous. And Isaiah says, when they took him away, there was oppression and judgment, but he didn't open his mouth. He was silent. He didn't object. He didn't try to prove his case. He didn't lay out his defense for his innocence. He didn't try to talk them out of what they were doing. He was a willing sacrifice. This is John chapter 10, the night before Jesus was crucified, where he says, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. They're not going to take it from me. I'm going to lay it down. That's my, my, my choice, my calling from the Father. I lay it down of my own accord. This is Hebrews chapter 12 telling us that the great high priest, Jesus Christ, went to the cross for the joy set before him. Don't pity him. Don't feel sorry for him. He went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. The joy of bringing glory to himself, glory to the Father, the joy of saving people and sprinkling people from many nations. He was a perfect sacrifice. He was pure and he was willing. Lastly, number five, the servant of the Lord was fulfillment, was the fulfillment of God's plan for redemption. He was the fulfillment. Look at the last three verses. Isaiah 53.10. Verse 10 may be the most amazing verse in the whole song. It says, Yet it was the will 
of the Lord, the will of Yahweh, to crush him. He, that is the Lord, has put him, that is the servant, to grief. It was the Lord's will to crush him, and he put him to grief. When a soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Talking about the servant. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The cross was not something that happened to Jesus. The cross was something that Jesus was involved in planning. He allowed it willingly, gladly to happen to him. None of it was happenstance. None of it was accidental. None of it was things just spiraled out of control and a bad thing happened to a good person. It was God's will to crush him. It was the fulfillment of God's plan. And it worked. Notice all the words of victory in that last stanza. Just go through and underline some of these words. He's going to prolong his days. Yes, he's going to be cut off, but it's not the end of him. His days will be prolonged. He will prosper. He will be satisfied. Many will be accounted righteous. We'll come back to that idea. He has a portion. He has spoil. Isaiah is telling you the plan worked. This was the plan. It was God's will to do this. It was God's plan from the beginning and the whole thing worked just like he wanted it to. How does all that impact us today? I want to give you three thoughts and we'll wrap it up. Number one, we rejoice that from eternity past God had a plan to save sinners. That should move you to worship. When you read a man describing the cross 700 years in advance, you realize God knew what he was doing. He had a plan to save us. Look, it's not just Isaiah 700 years in advance. We can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and the Lord shows up and he says, I'm going to send someone to crush the serpent's head. Right? All the details aren't filled out there in Genesis 3, but God is saying, I have a plan for this. This is not unforeseen to me. This has not caught me off guard. It gets even more amazing when you get to the book of Acts. And I'll let you look at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. You look them up later. This is what Acts 2 says. The death of the servant was according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. The the, the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of the servant, it was the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Acts chapter 4. The death of the servant, the cross, Jesus dying was what God predestined to take place. Right? We can dial it back past Isaiah, past Eden, and we can go back into eternity past. And we say, from the beginning, Apostle Peter will say, from the foundation of the world, God had a plan to save sinners. He called it in Genesis 3. He started talking about it. He called it in the book of Isaiah through this prophet. It all came about exactly like he said it was going to. He had a plan and it worked. That should move us to worship. Number two, we rejoice that Jesus became sin for us and he bore the curse of God for us. He became sin for us. Our sin was imputed to him 
and he took the curse of God that should have fallen on us. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that is God, the Father, made him, that's Jesus, the servant, to be sin. The one who knew no sin. He was pure. He was spotless. Why did he do that? It's so that in Jesus, we could become the righteousness of God. This is the language of imputation. Paul didn't invent this out of thin air as he's writing to the Corinthians. He's pulling it straight out of Isaiah. It's not a direct quote, but it's the exact same idea. Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The one who knew no sin became sin. He took our iniquity. Our iniquity was laid on him. It was imputed to him. Isaiah 53, 11. Many will be accounted righteous. Our sin has been taken away and we've received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Theologians call this the great exchange. It's, the, it's God's grace on full display for everyone to see that he takes the sin of wicked, guilty people and he places it on his son. And he takes the righteousness of his son and he places it on will, wicked, guilty people. And he declares them righteous. He declares them whole. He declares them pure. He declares them clean. He declares them forgiven. He became sin for us and he bore the curse of God for us. Last, we rejoice that there is a mediator between holy God and sinful humans, the man Jesus Christ. There is a mediator. There's a go-between between the holy God and sinful people. And look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I know that our culture looks at that verse and says, well, that's very narrow. It's very restrictive to say that there's only one God or there's only one mediator. But facts are facts. And the Bible says there is only one true God, and the one mediator that's been provided is one more than you and I deserved. And so we can complain about how many ways there should be, how many mediators there should be. We don't like the plan. You can say whatever you want. This is the plan. It was fulfilled perfectly, just as Isaiah predicted it in Jesus. And the result is that there's a mediator between you, a sinful person, and the holy God. You need that. You need that if you're going to have a relationship with the holy God, the holy creator. If you're going to come into his presence, you've got to have a go-between. You've got to have an advocate. You've got to have somebody on your side. And you've got a couple of choices. As you come to the end of this series and you come to the end of Isaiah's servant songs, one choice would be Isaiah 53, 6. Like a sheep, you could go astray and you could turn to your own way. You could just keep doing that. You could say, I don't like this way, and I'm going to go my own way. That's one option. The other option is just to admit, I need a mediator. I need a go-between. I need an advocate. I need somebody who will take my place. I need a substitute to die for my sin, for the curse of God that should fall on my head. I need Jesus. I need the servant. I'm going to ask you to bow, and we're going to pray.